Welcome to the latest HR Futures podcast brought to you by CERCAL, uh, the people behind Working Futures. This podcast series is brought to you in partnership with Kaplan Performance Academy, uh, helping you meet your organisational development needs. Today with me is Rakesh Lau, who is the global HRD for Kantar Public and Marketing. Welcome. Hi, Kevin. Now, um, what I always start off with is, Rakesh, is give us a bit of context. Tell us a bit about your organisation uh, and your role so that people understand who you are and what you're doing. Sure. So um, let me start off by the purpose of uh, why we exist as Kantar. And our mission is to um, understand people and inspire growth. So we are the world's largest data insights and consulting company. Um, we've got 28,000 employees in over 90 markets, you know, with a real global geographical footprint. And essentially what we do is we help our clients understand how people think, shop, feel, vote and act. Um, I've been with the business for 10 years, so I, I look after a specific part of the business. Um, I'm the HR leader for our public division, um, and we work with governmental clients across all four continents around um, our, our public consulting, research and advisory arm. Um, so I sit on their leadership team, on their board globally, and then I also am responsible for marketing, global marketing. I sit on their exco. So in terms of employee numbers, just to give you a little feel, about 250 in marketing and about 550 in public. Okay. So um, again, Cantor has been through a sort of change of ownership recently. So owned by WPPP and now owned by private equity, Bain Capital. Tell us a bit about the difference for that, you know, because again, you know, being part of the world's largest sort of marketing organisation, uh, I suspect brings scale and lots of reach in terms of customers and clients. Being part of private equity, I imagine most probably, uh, this is me making lots of assumptions already, you know, quite focused, quite bottom line orientated. But again, so just tell us a bit about what that, that change in ownership has done. Sure. So, you're absolutely right, Kevin. The difference between uh, public ownership and private ownership is is miles of, apart. Um, you know, Kantar as part of WPP was a division within a division. So we were WPP's data investment management arm. Um, as you know, WPP is about 430,000 mm -hmm. employees, 16 billion revenue. So you've kind of got enough levels above before you get to the shareholder value. And so, you know, WPP was in effect our bank and they would fund our headcount plans and, uh, you know, give us the, 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 the funds and the money to do uh, what we needed to, where we needed to invest. Um, as you can imagine, when we got sold to Bain Capital, um, WPP retained a 40% stake, but now there's, there's no real hiding place. I mean, we are, we've got direct visibility with those shareholders. We have to uh, deliver our revenue because we are ultimately now standalone and um, have to you know, fund our payrolls or justify the return on investment on everything that we do. 
And what does that mean in terms of the change of approach in terms of people strategy? You know, different, slightly different focus in terms of what they're expecting from an HR function. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I think when, when we were bought by Bain um, at the start of the year, they, they very much knew they'd bought a solid business. And the, and the strategy was threefold. It's invest for the future, win with clients and also cut costs. Um, and as an HR function, we're right in the center of that business in terms of supporting that strategy. You know, how we win with clients is all about how we hire the best people, how we cut costs is how we look at operational efficiencies and how we invest for the future is also around, um, you know, if I think about the amount of technology people that we need to hire or the, the next levels of thought leadership, it all become it all ties into that people strategy because ultimately, Kevin, you know, the people are our product. We sell people's time. So we are, you know, have to be at the center of that. And it's always interesting to see quite upfront the thing about efficiency, you know, operational efficiency or, or cost effectiveness. I, I mean, th does that bring attention, you know, while you're trying to hire the best people, create a great culture, develop people, you know, trying to do that cost effectively, has it changed the, the sort of tension between what you can do and what you can't do? It depends how you approach it, right? Um, you have to be transparent empathetic and as long as you can show the employee uh, and the employees in the workforce what the direction of travel is and get that um, trust then I think it's it, it shouldn't create tension because ultimately you don't you know nowadays in today's digital world we all know what venture capitalists or private equity or public ownership stand for um, and you don't need to be a genius to work out that if Bain Capital have bought our business for over $3 billion, they're going to want a return on that investment and they're going to want to grow it. So um, realistically speaking, from a, an employee engagement perspective, or even when you're hiring, as long as you can explain that this is, this is our direction of travel and it's quite an exciting company to be in because the culture changes quite quickly, um, as you can just imagine, I'm sure, when you've spoken to other HRDs. Okay, um, so I'm going to change direction a little bit. Let's go back to the beginning of your career, because I think it's always interesting to understand how people got into HR um, initially. So, uh, and very few people, um, some, but very few decide at university they want to become an HR uh, professional. Most find a route into it at some point and then decide, oh, this, I like this. This is for me. I get this. Um, what was your sort of routine? I think you may be one of the former rather than the latter. Yeah, I've listened to quite a few of your podcasts and, and, and seen how people have fallen in to HR. Mine was very much a, a conscious decision. Uh, I've been in HR for all my career, 21 years. Um, I remember when I completed my degree in politics at the University of Liverpool. I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I could see a lot of the graduate brochures had HR, you know, structured programs. And I just like the look of the variety, you know, back in the day, again, before the digital internet sort of world, there were the careers advisory services would show the Unilevers or the PNGs or the Coca-Colas all having structured HR programs. So I decided to do a master's at the University of Warwick um, 
in what was then called personnel management and industrial relations. Sounds so, so old now. So did you do that straight after your first degree before you went into work or did you do work and then yeah, go back? Straight after. Um, so in, in effect, I, I was born in Leamington Spa. I came back home. My parents funded my master's um, and I thought it would then give me that competitive advantage to get onto a decent graduate scheme, which is what I managed to do. So uh, I still, I'm still interested. So you did politics, you're looking around, you're interested in corporate life, looking at graduate programs. I'm still interested in why people, I like the bit about variety, but why not, I don't know, sales or uh, operations or technology, you know, they've all, they all can have quite a lot of variety and change. Yeah. The, a lot of it came down to when you went you to the graduate affairs and you'd speak to HR graduate trainees, they'd talk to you about how no two days are the same. You know, if you think about the spectrum of HR, you're involved with employment law, from recruitment to retention to employee relations. Um, so the variety around, you know, policy management, you can write policies, you can, you've got to be up to date with, um, you know, what country labor law yeah, yeah. So it's very um what i what i really was fascinated by and also i was quite fortunate that i'd got a stint my mum worked at the warwickshire county council so she got me a stint in personnel over the summer and okay. i worked with a few personnel directors at the time um so I, I got a real feel for it as well some work experience and i thought yeah i could do this i, I think okay. this could work for me Okay, so so that's how you got into HR. Then then you know quite a long stint in um, sort of car automotive for ten years, Land Rover um, and Aston Martin. I suspect a lot of people um, uh, quite envious of working for that company. But tell us a little bit about, and I, I'm interested in comparing and contrasting. So tell us a little bit about the difference between sort of HR within a, a, an automotive business, and I'm sure it's moved on since you were there. But there are some fundamental things that I suspect are similar to, to you know, professional services that you're currently working in. So tell me about what's your take on HR in different environments and different contexts. Sure. Um, so firstly, I, I think I do believe that HR, similar to accounting, you can apply HR to any industry, retail, financial services, manufacturing, professional services, public sector. If you're good, if you're able to coach, influence, understand policies, employment law, the nuts and bolts of it, you should be able to do. However, the cultural differences between an automaker, you know, um, and a professional services group are chalk and cheese, really are. And I think that going one way so if i was to go from Kantar into auto now i think i'd fail um going the other way has has been an easier transition because when i joined aston martin in 2002 we were owned by ford motor company and ford mm -hmm. motor company had premier automotive group ford owned volvo jaguar land rover aston martin mazda and that their structures around the train, you know, for HR in terms of the career pathing mm. was so good, so solid. And it wasn't really an environment where you could, um, where you could fail. I mean, you couldn't iterate there. 
um, as you could do today. If you one false move with a trade union representative, you know, you could cost the company millions because they'd go on strike. Um, you know, I've got plenty of stories about how I would do corridor deals with my trade union rep. Um, and it was a bit, it was harder to fail fast there because ultimately um, you were in the thick of it, right in the thick of it. I remember I, I used to support the Range Rover Defender production lines. You're talking about a thousand blue collar mm. employees, lots of employee relations there, really put hairs on your chest. And, and, and so if you look, you know, I suppose I'm, I'm, I th- I, a lot of people that listen to these podcasts are people that sort of aspire to be HR directors. And I think they're, you know, they're, they're trying, they're rummaging around thinking about HR and they may do a CIPD or a degree or a master's in, in HR, which gives you the context, gives you the theory. And you're right, to some extent, you know, we all do performance management, we all do leadership development, we're all interested in employee engagement. Um, uh, most of us are, are, are doing interesting things at the moment around well-being and whatever it may be. So a lot of them are, are standard approaches, but they're applied differently, aren't they? And I, I suppose I'm just trying to bring out the, the differences. So, I mean, if you think about engagement, I mean, I imagine even now in an automotive factory, it's still a bit top down, a bit communication orientated, whereas in professional services, it's, you know, we leave people to get on, they deliver the value, we manage we manage the outcomes and the outputs of their work because it's knowledge work rather than, you know, how fast is that thing going down that conveyor belt? Absolutely right. I mean, you have to think about, um, you know, in, in a production environment, when I was at Solihull, there was no clocking in system. You know, so headcount yeah. management was done on, yeah. in Excel. Um, there wasn't really the robust HR systems at the time. Yes, we had people soft, but did it really capture everybody, the contingent workforce? Um, not everybody had a laptop. The, you know, the cubes mm. around SQDCME, safety, quality, cost, delivery, morale, environment, you'd have to do your stand-up around morale. And it was what the, the beautiful thing about it, Kevin, was that there was no it wasn't there were no shades of gray. It was black or white. So volumes are falling 20%, you take out 20% headcount. So simply, there was no argument. And I, I, I think on the professional services side, you'd always get, well, you know, we're a bit under-resourced, the client's not happy, can we do this? And it's much more of a consultative environment. And yeah. as you said, much more around the knowledge side, which is you're making, you're making decisions around evidence-based practice rather than a JFDI, HR yeah. means to an end, crack on, speak to the union, tell us the policy and see you later okay so um really quite an interesting varied career i suppose one of the things i am really interested in, i suppose it's quite topical and you know just in terms of the last 10 months and dealing with covid and uh the challenges that's thrown down for organizations and hr being very much in the forefront just tell us a bit about how Cantar have dealt with this about how you've responded to that challenge of people working remotely i suspect you already did quite a bit of that but i'm i'm sure it's created some some challenges and some opportunities so tell us a little bit about what it's meant for you and how you've responded and then the key question for me is what have you learned what do you think's not going to go back to the way it was it's a great question kevin um and uh, you know let me take you right back to the start of the year 
we had a, a global HR directors meeting in London. We had all of our talent plans set out. We knew exactly what we were going to do, best laid plans and all that, right? Um, and then I remember messaging my uh, our global finance controller on on Teams, saying, "Hey, Sean, you know, how's the order book looking? What do you think for this year?" And he said, "Look, we're looking. You know, we're on for a good quarter. My only worry is COVID." you know, CV-19. And I said, well, you know, that's just China, isn't it? We should be all right. We, we've, we're big enough in the US and UK. And he goes, no, uh, this could hit us quite badly. And I'm worried. And he's not a guy that tends to get worried that often. Um, and then I remember, you know, I was recruiting for a chief marketing officer in, in for media in February. I went to Grayson Road in London and we were going to have a candidate that was flying in from Italy, from Milan, Mm. And the recruiter said, look, Rakesh, I'm, I can't fly him in. He's going to have to be a remote interview because of, you know, this COVID thing. Um, and I'm like, are you, are you sure? It's a bit overkill, isn't it? Can't we get him across? Mm. Um, and then he did the presentation all about COVID. I mean, it was, and th th it was a bit bizarre because we were, we were looking at him in his room. His curtains were drawn and Italy had gone into this lockdown. We hadn't at the time. And we, we were like, this guy is just a little bit obsessed about this COVID-19 thing, isn't he? Um, hindsight's a wonderful thing. But, and then it really hit us in March and we, we knew that we were going to be, as a business, starting to lose revenue. And we had to respond. And HR, you know, right at the center of the table, you know, we got management consultants in. We worked with, you know, management consultants on how we were going to react to this as a, as a board. I remember our, um, as we all went to remote working, our chief HR officer, Scott Carter, said at the time, you know, put the real trust back in the employee base, which is, right, guys, it's okay to be homeschooling. It's okay not to be 100% productive at work. Don't feel that you need to be online 10, 12 hours a day. You, you, it's a different world. We'll adapt to it. We'll bounce back. And as a business, we just took some really smart decisions around, right, you know, my training budget, right, that's gone. Rakesh, no discretionary spend. Contingent workers, freelancers, how can we exit those in, a, in an empathetic way? Um, vacancies, freeze recruitment, right? All the positions that we've got. So all of that, you know, we had to pivot quite quickly as a business. And also in the public space, how we went out, you know, we do a lot of face-to-face -face interviewing mm. and we had to quickly move to video. So what do we take out of this? What do you think is never going to go back to the way it was before? Oh God, that's um, really interesting. Well, our biggest learning has been, wow, we can have a productive workforce working from home. I mean, I would, you know, typically I would do four big trips a year. Um, my, my training, um, sorry, my travel budget um, is quite generous, as are a lot of our global HRDs travel budgets. I'm not sure we'll get those back. No. Um, you know, um, this year I was planning on being in in May. I was going to be in Australia. In March, I was going to be in Kenya. Um, I travel down to London once or twice a week. I'd stay over. You know, it was just um, there's a big you know, a, a lot of our business is based on relationship and face-to-face. -face. Um, through Microsoft Teams, that's still possible. I think we have to be careful there, right? Um, you have to think about the graduates and the millennials that really need that shadowing and mentoring 
and how do we still create those creative juices? But I can't see our multi-million dollar budgets at the center around travel. Bain can will look at that line on the on the on the on on the on the scorecard and think we can cut that. I, I think you're right about um, uh, graduates and things. People, have, you know, how do you learn your trade? You know, early in your career, a lot of it's through observation and sitting in on things and all of that. So I think that's one area. The other bit I think is when you change job. I mean, there, there are people that have changed job during this period and have never been to an office and never met anyone in person. And you think about that and you think, how do you get underneath a culture? How do you really understand how decisions get made and how things happen and you know, the politics, which, you know, you tend to get when you're traveling with people or you're grabbing a coffee. That's when they give you the, the context and the background, you know, Correct. on a team's conversation, you do the formal bit, but you don't always do the, the informal bit. So I think that must be incredibly difficult to, to sort of, you know, really understand an organization and how it operates and get underneath the skin and, and try and make sure that yeah. you can get things done. You can, you can flip that around the other way. So if I think about, there was a public board meeting in February this year where we all met face to face, every regional leader. So glad that happened before COVID, then travel stopped. But what I've noticed in a global team now, there was kind of this, we've got a bit of an attitude in that within our business because the UK and the US have the most headcount. They're kind of seen like the HQs. Mm -hmm. So because I'm sat in the UK, it's like HQ is saying this. So if you were in more London place on London Bridge, you kind of have those corridor conversations, right? And you know what's going down. Now what I'm seeing is the Spanish, the people in Barcelona, the people in France, in Paris, they're, they're now on an equal playing field <laughs> because they've got a voice because we're not hearing anything that they're not hearing. So you can flip it the other way, which is actually our Spanish yeah. colleagues and our French colleagues have, have actually stepped up to the plate. Um, and it's not all about getting to London. Yeah, yeah. And London and New York aren't the centres of the universe. Okay. So the other bit, just to sort of finish up on this, the whole thing about how do people return to, to the office? Um, and and I, I'm interested in this because I, I see, a, I see a, um, a paradox, shall we call it, which is that we want to allow people to work in the way that works for them. So we want to empower individuals. We want to personalise their working so that they can be the most productive, the most efficient, you know, add the most value. At the same time, though, we know that we want to optimize organizationally. We want to, you know, find the ways of making sure that the organization, people feel that they're belonging and we have great teamwork and a, a culture of collaboration and innovation. So how do we do the two? How, you know, is your organization in the HR uh, function really thinking about do we do it through policies that you have to be in two days a week or are we going to allow line managers to make decisions? How do we then do it consistently? How do we do it so that people are getting what I'm fascinated with this. I just think it's a great area for us to, as, as a profession to demonstrate our value and our ability to be agile and think creatively. Yeah. And as a, we don't do it by policy, Kevin, we, we really don't. I mean, we moved to agile working years ago. You know, we've all got lockers in our home offices. There's nobody's got a desk. Our CEO, our former CEO, Eric Salama, used to sit in the open plan office with a locker. Um, we have the meeting rooms that we book. And and ultimately, you work to do to deliver your day. So if I've got a call with Australia at seven o'clock in the morning, 
I'm not going to the office for the seven o'clock in the morning call. But if I need to have a face-to-face -face meeting, then I'll go into the office, especially if it's a group meeting or a team meeting. But you have to trust your employees to make those decisions. So what I'm seeing more and more as I go in, you know, I went into the Warwick office today to, you know, finish up a few mm. things. And I saw some payroll colleagues in because they need to print pay slips. And they haven't got big laser jet mm. printers at home, right? Um, so if you're in an operational team or a client service team, of course you need to be in the office. Those innovation juices need to flow. If you're in a sole contributor role, you could work from home for the whole year. You might not even need to see an analyst because they can do their job remotely. So, so it's down to the individual and the job they do, but we empower them to make the choices about how and when they work. Absolutely right. Okay, let's move on. Tell us about some of the things that you're, you're proud of in your career, the things that you think when you look back, you go, that made a difference, you know. So, And tell us a little bit about what the issue was, what the problem was, what the intervention was and the difference it made. So I'm really keen to, I'm yeah. always keen to get some sharing of great, you know, uh, ideas and great approaches. So what, what's at the front of the mind in terms of, things you're proud of yeah there's probably three things uh, i think i was really proud when i was you know when i became hr manager at aston martin at the age of 30 i was one of the youngest managers in the company i was uh, i had two company cars uh, mm. i was driving aston martin's db9s at weekends i was really living that dream um and then um i i you know the, the credit crunch happened uh wholesales fell i decided to get out at the right time um and if I think about, you know, a couple of big examples, probably 2016 resonates really well. Um, I became global HR director for finance, marketing um, at that time. And it was a bit of a baptism of fire because we were moving to a new strategy around Kantar first. So we had a number of operating companies at the time, 13, lots of brands. We had to consolidate them. So Millwall Brown and TNS became insights, added value and Vermeer, et cetera, became consulting. And I had to partner with the global CFO because we were moving to a, a shared service model. And what we were doing is effectively creating control and accounting teams to have an effective business partnering model and then offshore to India and the UK. And I kind of got put into role in about March 16. And I remember sitting down with him in London and, he, and he, he's, a, he's a big player. You can imagine, you know, Robert Botel, global CFO of, of Kantar, you know, big personality, had the relationship with WPP and Samai and Sorrell. And he just looked at me and he said, I haven't got a plan, a concrete plan on engagement. And I don't really know how we're going to achieve this um, restructuring. And I've only got 12 weeks to deliver it. Um, and so... We had management consultants, we had, you know, uh, dispersed teams all over the place. And it was really, for me, a, a watershed moment for how do I join up these dots? And I remember I've been driving Kevin for 25 years and I, and I was driving back from the Warwick office trying to put this plan together. And I went straight into the back of another car. I had my first car accident, completely, you know, just thinking about work 24 seven. And in, in effect, what we had to do was we had to deliver um, the operating model. We had to do the transformation. We had to do the engagement. We had to do, deliver the numbers. Um, we had to offshore 
uh, uh, you know, transactional uh, financial shared services to GenPACT in India. Um, and I'm proud to say that I delivered it. Um, okay, when I said delivered it, I came very close to where we needed to get to, but that, you know, getting to the 80% of the 100% by the end of June um, was a real moment for me where I think the CFO then looked at me and said, I didn't realize that I've, what HR could actually achieve for me. And, you know, um, we always have a little, we always used to have a bit of a jokey moment because he was like, well, HR for me has always been about the soft stuff. And, you know, you do all the, you know, the, the tea and the tissues kind of thing. But now I know that I've got a HR partner that understands the numbers, can read a P&L, can deliver what I need to be delivered. And, I, you know, a real trusted advisor. And after that, those three months, he took me everywhere. You know, I, every time he was in New York, I was in New York. Every time you know, we went to Brazil, Argentina together, India, he sent me to India to do the training with Genpact. A real moment for me, um, if that makes sense, at the Kantar HQ level. Yeah, yeah, one of those moments, one of those things where you, you know, you're thrown a bit of a challenge, you know, tight time scales, big numbers to deliver, no one's quite sure, you step into it, you deliver a result, and off the back of it, you know, it establishes your credibility in the organisation, builds really quite important relationships. Um, and you said there was something else. You said there was another one because you said... Oh, yeah, so so um, I joined public this year. Um, I joined the division, and... Um, it's amazing what you can achieve in a pandemic, right? When you're working 12 hours a day from home. So in, in those, um, since since February, we've delivered um, a career pathing uh, strengths framework, which is effectively a career navigator, a shadow board of emerging leaders to help nice. us understand what the, the people in the, on the ground are thinking, a faculty of technical training. I've really been able to hit the ground running within that division. Um, mainly because I can navigate Kantar really well. So I've got you know, a network of 15 HRBPs, a program manager, a learning consultant, a reward consultant, really being given now a real mandate to govern there um, and have really enjoyed being in my first P&L role on a global board and uh, working with the CEO to see how we can deliver that growth and that growth growth blueprint for the next three years i'm going to come back to you know i don't know learning or things that you do different in hindsight but i just want to pick up on that 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 point about the pnl thing because one of the things that i'm fascinated about is is people's strategy you know and and while i think we've already agreed there are lots of things that you do which are similar in organizations you know hr can do a, a thousand different things you know there are millions of different interventions that we can make different policies, different ways of doing stuff. The bit that I'm always interested in is what do you decide goes in and what do you decide doesn't go in? So, you know, I'm thinking about the business. I'm working as part of the leadership team. I have to make a choice about prioritizing and focusing on those three or four things this year and potentially putting some of this stuff on the back burner. What I'm interested in is that thought process. How do you go through that deciding what's in and what's not it's it's quite simple really the first thing you've got to do is get the business plan so you have to get the business plan from the ceo or the cmo so i had the same conversation this week with both the cmo natalie Badet in marketing and michelle harrison for public which is can you send me 
those slides that you've just presented to the board or to the exco and then i'll build a talent plan the first draft and what you have to realize is that the cmos or the ceos they're not really interested with all due respect that a contract has gone out or somebody's pension is six and four percent or somebody's got the right holiday entitlement in the system the people strategy has to have four elements to it and it's what david ulrich talks about 4.0 the role of the chro the employee experience the workforce plan the engagement plan and ultimately how you're going to enable their growth so how do you end up building a talent plan that focuses on the growth blueprint so you've yeah. got to have a learning element to it right yeah. it's all about the upskilling the capability we talk a lot in hr about capability right but what does it actually mean if you think about this disruptive world that we live in now we're all on social media we've all got twitter instagram linkedin there are various forums you know mckinsey's harvard business review cipd we've got thought leadership coming out of our ears how do you then channelize that and then make it real because you can talk about thought leadership all you want but every ceo or cfo or cmo that i've worked with they don't want to hear the hr jargon they just want to know how are you going to add value to my business and I, actually are you a business consultant or a hr consultant yeah and i, I like, well that's an interesting i'll come back to that in a sec <laughs> uh, but i think you're right about the things engagement experience growth absolutely you know i suppose the bit is how do you then choose what you're going to do in relation to those things in relation to that business plan because clearly that's when you go back to the chief exec or the chief marketing officer and go look i've looked at the business plan in relation to engagement it's about i don't know it's about attracting that talent to the organization and retaining that core talent because that will drive profitability or in engagement it may be a, we've got to engage that tier of management because if we so i suppose there's still choices i suppose i'm just trying to get into that quite mechanistic bit of we're going to do that we're, those are the things we're going to focus on and those are the things we're not because i think it's a key differentiator between great people leadership um okay people leadership yeah and my my, my manager in new york uh, her name cynthia Reppert, she talks a lot about this she says don't think about activity think about impact yeah, and actually yeah, yeah. we do a lot because we're a data company we do a lot on evidence-based hr so what yeah. i will do when i take anything to the table it's it's ultimately i'm trying to sell it into the business which is if we invest so my training budget will be x the thousand amount of dollars right i'll have a training budget for uh public which the cfo is always trying to cut but i, <laughs> I always have a joke with him saying i need it and i'll say give me that hundred thirty thousand dollars and i'll show you what i can do with it or for marketing give me that fifty thousand dollars and we'll go to this direction because it's about that roi at the end of the day and yeah, it's if you can show them that an accelerated leadership program that I've worked on before or another division has got will build succession planning. Why wouldn't you have it? Yeah, yeah absolutely, Rakesh. I, I mean, I'm a great believer. I, this is what I give to HR people. I do some stuff on different courses and stuff with sort of aspiring HR uh, leaders. And I go, look, it's quite simple. Three questions. Why are we doing it? What difference is it going to make? And how am I going to measure it? 
So whatever I do, I will answer those three questions because that's what the business is interested in. Not the intervention, not the right. interesting thing, not the interview technique, not the development stuff, but I'm doing this because we think it will make a difference to I don't know, revenue growth. This is how, you know, this is the, you know, this is how I'm going to measure it. And this is how I'm going to show I can give you a return on that investment. Absolutely. Absolutely right. So it is as simple as that, right? I mean, <laughs> HR has to get out of the doing a number of things badly. Let's do a few things really well. Yeah. So let me go back to that question I didn't ask you earlier, which is, you know, we talked about what you're proud of. Uh, and then after this question, we'll have a break request and then we'll come back for our second half. But the question I suppose is this, eh? not so much mistakes, but what can you look back on and go, mm, okay, I would do that differently now. I'm wiser. I've learned. I've adapted my myself and my approach. And what I was doing then clearly didn't have the impact that I would have liked to have. So, so I'm trying to get you to go back and look at things that you do differently because I think you learn as much from success and from, you know, reflection, really looking at what works and what doesn't. Any, yeah. what's your insight? What's the thing that springs to mind? So I think when I was in the automotive world, I'm, I love cars. I'm car obsessed. So um, I didn't realize there was a big wide world out there outside of automotive. For me, everything was about Ford, Jaguar, Land Rover, Aston Martin. I still follow them. Um, I still drive the brand. I'm very proud of um, of the British mark. You still, drive, you still drive the DB9, do you? <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> not quite. Um, but so I think, you know, realizing that there's a massive global footprint out there where you can make a difference um, was one thing. And I'm really fortunate that I get to travel the world, right, and see those different cultures. And I was, I've been doing that now for over 10 years. I think this year has been a massive learning for me, Kevin, um, and under private equity as well. So mm. when I was um, offered the role as global HRD for finance um, by a lady called Anne Gillespie, who was CHRO at the time, I turned it down. I said, I, I think you've got the wrong guy because Robert Botel was this guy who was the CFO's manager's manager. He was, you know, you didn't get emails from this guy. This guy was in the press and, um, and so when I joined that team, that leadership team, I, I kind of felt like I was the subservient. So how, you know, do I deserve this seat at the table? And am I, my job is to get that, make them look good. So I'm, I, I, I'm really going to struggle to influence a coach, somebody that's my dad's age. Um, how, you know, I looked up to him as this guy who could just say, yeah, Rakesh, that's fine. Just go and do it. Suddenly I was, he was making decisions that would take weeks in Millwall Brown, UK, right? Um, and now what I've learned is that as my role as a board member for public is that I, I'm on an equal footing. They're my peers, the CEOs for each of those regions. I, I can influence them. I can coach them. And I'm in that spot now where the role of HRD globally is to be that coach and to challenge the, the thinking and to say, are you sure about that? If we think about what we're doing over here, that doesn't make sense that we're doing it over there. And I think four years ago, I wish, I really wish that I could have been a much bigger influencer around our, you know, finance function. Because 
if the if the management consultants had said it was right or a big hitting CFO had said it was right, of course it's right. These guys are really clever, right? But it's not always the case. So 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 what's the what's the message to uh, aspiring HR directors then? Believe in yourself, be confident, try it. What have you got to lose? What what's the what's the yeah. message, do you think? I think so a lot of HR directors, I've heard these on your podcast as well, they talk about having a seat at the table or being part of the business or the business accepting HR. We are the business, right? Yeah, um, yeah. And the, the message is no matter how big the ego or how big the stature of the person or how much PR they've got, believe in what your expertise is and um, believe that you're there to add that value. Okay. Uh, we're going to take a break now. Uh, join us in two minutes. Where we'll be back at the second half of uh, the podcast with Rakesh, where we're going to talk a bit more about HR, I suppose, our profession. Um, we're going to talk a little bit more about, um, most probably a bit more about how do we improve our profession? How do we get it to add more value. And then we're going to talk about Rakesh the man, what he does outside of work, what he's passionate about. Let's find out about uh, this wonderful human being that we're talking to today. So be back in a couple of minutes for the second part of the Circle HR Futures podcast. As the world comes to terms with the COVID-19 crisis, Circal want to help HR leaders look to the future. Will the crisis shift the world of work for good? What will this look like? And how should HR leaders help prepare their business? These are the questions that Kevin Green and the resident Circle experts will consider as part of the Shifting World of Work content series. Visit circal.co.uk to find out how you can get free access to Circal's up-to-the-minute news, research and opinion for you and your team today. Welcome back to the second part of the HR Futures podcast, brought to you in association with Kaplan Performance Academy. Uh, with me today is Rakesh Lau, who is the group or global HR director for Kantar Public and Marketing. Uh, we had a fantastic first half of the podcast. We talked a lot about his career, how he got into HR. We explored a bit about the difference between working in automotive and professional services. We talked a lot about his learning, the things he's proudest of, and also a little bit about, um, you know, uh, some of his great successes. So the second half is more about big picture. It's more about what we see in the future. So first question, I suppose, to get us to get us refocused again is, what do you think HR needs to do in the future as a profession? So, you know, I think we've made progress. I think we're more business focused. I think we add more value. I think the profession has moved a lot. In my working career, we've moved from personnel to HR to whatever we now call ourselves, but I think we're adding more value. But I'm fascinated to think about what comes next. You know, I think the future belongs to HR, the people stuff. How do we get discretionary effort? How do we create great people brands? All of that stuff, I think, is, is becoming more and more important corporately. So I think, for, you know, I'm interested in your take on what do you think the things are that HR need to be 
thinking about now and developing our own capability so we're ahead of the trend. So if the future of work is arriving some point soon, how does HR get in front of that so that we're, you know, we're ready for it, we're leading the way, we're educating our businesses so that they are ready for what comes next? Yeah, so I think COVID-19 has been a watershed moment for HR. I really do think that um, from the employee experience perspective, from a productivity perspective, from the future of work perspective, all businesses now have to be future proofed. We know that there have been, you know, airlines have been hit and hospitality has been hit and there will be no doubt a big aftershock and HR has to be ready for that, you know, and when I think about HR being ready for that, that isn't about policing or policy. It's all about org design, change management, transformation, um, and being right at the heart of the business. You know, Charles Darwin actually said, there's a quote, right, which I like to replay whenever we do change management, which is, it's not the strongest or the cleverest species that will survive but it's those who are most adaptable to change. So whenever we think about the change curve, when there's a shock and denial, because there was a big shock with COVID, a lot of people went into denial, HR has to be the ones that show that resilience. Because look, Kevin, we see all parts of the business. We speak to everybody. We speak to ops, client service, marketing, tech, legal, finance. We're the fortunate ones mm. that get to see where are the best pockets of leadership and how then do we apply that into our daily into our daily lives so it comes back to what i was just talking about which is ulrich 4.0 right if we're going to get technical about it and to that operating model the employee experience agile and um keeping up to date on that thought leadership and what do you think this means in terms of you know, capability and skills for HR practitioners and and how do we get those skills and, and, and that capability? Because I, I think if you start to talk about evidence and data, transformation, org design, they're quite often sort of specialist roles within HR functions. You know, we've got lots of business partners, lots of people dealing with employee relations and payroll and all sorts of stuff. How do we, you know, really develop our own capability? What it, it, do you think it's about who we hire into the, the the profession? Do you think it's about different types of development? Do you think we need to? Is it about structure? I mean, do we go for a different structure where we break HR in two? Just give me some sort of thoughts, because 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 again, I'm spending a lot of time thinking about this in in light of writing my next book. So I'm I'm fascinated. You're providing some real input for me. Yeah, so look, the, the real centers of expertise for me and our business are around reward, talent acquisition, and learning and leadership. The BPs or the HRDs then have to be those generalists that have to have the exposure to change management, transformation, OD, and the employee experience. That's what we're paid to do. And you can only really get that two different ways, right? Either on the job, which is the best way. There's no better learning than on the job through mentoring and coaching. So shadowing other experts in that field 
or you go and do a professional qualification in it. So you can see lots of people that do masters now in organizational design. Um, they become, you know, much more specialist. But naturally, um, you know, we've got, we're really lucky at Kantar. We've got HR directors that have come from different industries. Some have come from Heineken. Some have come from other FMCG groups. Some have been at Kantar for 10 years. So how do you get that blend of taking an HRD that's got really good experience in org design and actually doing a big one? Um, or, you know, I'm happy to speak to other HR practitioners around my learnings from Kantar First and Finance for the Future. I'm actually involved um, next year. We'll be doing a, you know, our marketing org design. Our new CEO who joins us in January, Alexis Nassad, is um, joining Kantar at the top, and he's formerly the CMO of of, of Heineken. Um, and we've also got some HRDs that have come from there recently. So. We, we, we'll be speaking to him, right, about his, what are his views on marketing? And is it about the brand? Is it about marketing qualified leads? Is it about um, the, the, the PR? You know, where should we invest our dollars to get the biggest bang for the buck? But coming back to your question, Kevin, I really think that as a global or a national HRD, if you're not in the change management space or the OD space, or the influencing, coaching, employee experience space, then you're just a glorified BP. No, I, I, I think there's, um, I, I, I think that we have to, you know, I think long term we've got to think about those capabilities and how we develop them. Because I think you're right, you know, most people have got them to some extent. But I do think we really need to think about development, professional development. I also, this is my other thing about HR. I think we've got to compete for talent with sales and marketing right at the front. You know, I'm not, you know, I teach on an MBA sort of um, program around strategic HR module. And when I'm doing this, you'll love this. Okay, so I start at the beginning, who's in HR? And two hands go up, you know, normally a group of 60 people. Uh, um, and then I say, right, who wants to spend some time in HR? The two hands come down. And no hands go up. And I'm going, <laughs> no, hang on a minute. I mean, I'm going, hang on, this is bizarre. You know, you know, you think about what, you know, any organization, knowledge-based organization, it, you know, businesses that are driven by intangibles, it's all about brand, so which is people, it's all about uh, loyalty, customers, people, it's all about innovation people. It, that's what drives value in our economy. And and look, most really bright people are going, I don't want to spend any time in that function. That's so we have to reposition it so that we can bring in high, you know, greater horsepower, I think, and then think about how we develop it. So I just think we've got to be more assertive at bringing in talent into our own um, profession. Correct. Um, uh, you're right, Kevin. And, but you've got to, you know, I was taught from a very early age that if you don't get your payrolls and contracts right, forget the strategic conversation. And I agree with that. And I'm not sure we need to own that anymore. That's no. my challenge. I think we just give that away. Shared service, world-class, deliver great value, measure it, have a nice internal NPS, crack on. Done. Same as finance. Same yeah. as finance. So the finance journey that I had was if you can fix control and accounting and get your numbers right, your forecast, your P&L, your you know, balance sheet, let the business partners focus on the yeah. growth mindset. 
which clients, how are we going to win with those clients? How are we going to renew those contracts? Are we going to get the pricing right? And actually what, what my biggest frustration was that the finance people, they love the controllership, right? They, they want to get, be on that side. And they, you know, we would, our CEO, our previous CEO, when I was doing talent reviews with him, he was saying rear view mirror and then road ahead. And control and accounting, Rakesh, I just want the, they should be looking in the rear view mirror and just, you know, give us, when you're publicly owned, of course, you've, you're shareholder responsible. Yeah, you've got to get it bang on. But business partnering is about growth mindset and the road ahead. And that's all our CEO speak to me about, which is how you're going to contribute to the three-year growth blueprint. Okay. I think, I think, I think, you know, I think we're on the same page on, on some of this stuff. I think there's a, a big development agenda for the HR function. We need to think about how we structure, but anyhow, let's move on. Um, I suppose we talked a bit about COVID. We talked a bit about the learning from that. Just tell us a bit about, I suppose, your, year ahead what does 2021 look like for for your business so you know i don't want you to go into the nuts and bolts of every activity you're doing but give me the sort of the focus what are the big deliverables for you and for your function in 2021 what are you looking forward to i'm really looking forward to 2021 if i'm honest um i can't wait to see the back of 2020 it's been a tough year for us and hr has really had to stand up and show its metal um there are two, you know, as I've said, I support two areas of the business. Um, so from a public perspective, we're hiring new leaders in Washington and Delhi. I'm going to be focusing on their onboarding. We're taking new business opportunities in Poland, in Spain and the Nordics and in New Zealand. So there's a transition piece there around integration. Um, and then I'm really looking forward to actually presenting to the board in January around the talent plan. You know, how are we going to, what programs are we going to run for our high potentials, for our emerging leaders? The shadow board will continue. That'll be the BAU. I, share, I chair, co-chair the shadow board. Um, and, you know, we then get to that growth blueprint. You know, we're forecasting growth, fingers crossed, for next year. And we feel that if we get the investment, we can do it, right? We've, we've shown mm. this year what a resilient business we are. And under, you know, the 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 second full year of ownership under Bain Cap, um, I'm really looking forward to 2021. And then from a marketing perspective, it really then comes down to two main things. Um, building our digital capability. Um, so we're going to do digital training and roll that out. Um, we really want to have the business partnering mindset in marketing, which is end-to-end, -end, you know, how can they run those campaigns end-to-end -end and show their ROI as well on marketing qualified leads. And again, we're, we're, we're going to be lapping a really strong Q1 2020. So we won't go overboard with our investments for Q1 next year. Mm. But come Q2, where we're forecasting growth onwards, we'll do some strategic hires and hopefully get to launch this org design that I've been focusing <laughs> on for the last year or so that has been a bit stop start. Okay, sounds like a busy year for you uh, looking into 2021. Uh, my final question before we talk a bit about you uh, outside of work is um, a young person comes to you, they, you know, they're early in their career, they haven't yet decided whether HR is right for them. Uh, and they're thinking about whether to go into HR or finance or marketing or sales or, or whatever it might be. You know, what, what, what advice would you be giving to a you know, a bright young thing that was thinking about HR? Go into marketing. 
<laughs> Why? Well, I used to have a whole head of hair. I used to have lots of hair, Kevin, um, <laughs> when I was, and then I, I joined Jaguar Land Rover. And it was, look, in all seriousness, HR is a great profession to be in, but be prepared for the bruising, for the scars, for the hard work, for the variety of, of complexity that we have to deal with. I really feel that if you want to keep your youthful good looks, do something really creative, quite sexy, go into marketing. I, I, I would have loved to run events, um, traveled around. I, I see what my marketing colleagues do and they've got the, they've got the best engagement scores at Kantar. They've always beat HR, ops and, and finance because they've got great jobs, right? It's, um, it's really quite um, creative PRE, events based. But from, if you want to join HR, I think that, you know, any young person that I'd advise is A, take the time out to understand what's involved with that function, because you could quite easily get stuck in that function. Um, it's not about policy manuals, employee handbook and HR administration and coordination and policing. It really isn't. If you're ready to get into the heart of the business, if you're ready to have tough conversations with leaders that don't want to toe the party line um and you know you could liken it to the government's responses to covid or brexit and how they communicate just think about what we have to do in terms of change programs and communicate to a global workforce and be ready to be on point working with comms working with the business working with your finance partner working with the ceos working with the board. If you can't read a P&L or you're not commercial, it might not be for you. It really, I think, I, I'm, I'm, I get fascinated by the number of HRBPs that I speak to globally. And then I'll just test the waters, which is, so tell me then, you know, what, what are we looking like? What's your order book looking like? And they'll, and they'll look at me a bit gone out or blank. I, I don't know. Well, haven't you got a finance equivalent in your market that you can go and speak to about the performance? Because yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to sign that higher off unless I know you're on your underhead count, your staff costs aren't exceeding revenue, you're, you're exceeding revenue, EBITDA, and your order book's looking all right. If you can tick those five boxes, then um, I'll sign it off in Workday. Cool. So... It's a great opportunity. It's a great career. It's sexy. It's you've got loads of challenges. You might lose your hair, um, or you could end up going into marketing and get an even better job. Anyhow, so <laughs> HR is a great place to be, and I think it's got you know lots of lots of opportunities in the next ten to fifteen years. I really think it's uh, going to be at the heart of many organisations in terms of adding value. Um, so let's finish then, Rakesh, by talking a bit about what you do outside of work. You know, I'm always interested in the whole person. Um, uh, we do our work or our jobs for a, a large percentage of our time, but it's not the whole person. So I'm really interested in what your passions are outside of work. I mean, we've we've already heard a bit about cars and uh, I think sports in there somewhere as well. So tell us a bit about, you know, what the things are that, really gets you gets you going outside of work yeah okay yeah sure so I, i've been married to anita for 16 years um got two children boy and a girl dylan and karina are aged 10 and 9 and a large extended family um 
56 first cousins spread across India, Canada, and the UK and the US. So lots of um, extended family. So building relationships and trying to keep um, family politics at a, you know, an even keel is always uh, good for, the, for, for work as well, as you can imagine. But, yeah. but outside of work, I like to volunteer. I've been a governor at my children's primary school for over five years. I chaired their resourcing committee for a couple of years. I was a football manager for my son's under eights and under nines team. You know, I was really proud to win a trophy in my first season, get to the cup final in the second season. But then when the sale happened, you know, when we were up for sale, mm. um, I had to drop both chairing of the resourcing committee and the football manager role because work just took over. Um, but that said, I do, you know, when I'm unwinding and, you know, Netflix and chill kind of sort of guy, okay. um, I love the, um, I love sports psychology. So I've watched all the, you know, all or nothing's the Spurs one and the Man City one. Mm. I've watched the test on Amazon. I'm a big cricket fan, football fan, tennis fan, pretty much like all sports. Um, the last dance, the NBA, you know, I was yeah. lucky enough when I went to Madison Square Gardens to watch the New York Knicks. You know, CFOs would treat me at the time and say, let's go on, let's go and watch a basketball game, which is great. Um, so, you know, sports is a big passion of mine. And um, and then I also just like the good, good old fashioned, you know, British comedy when I just want to think, you know, a bit of Gavin and Stacey, uh, yeah. Only Fools and Horses, just easy comedy. Or then if it gets a little bit more, you know, psychological thrillers, Sky Atlantic and either The Undoing, which I've just recently finished with yeah, Hugh Grant and Nicole Kidman, yeah, yeah. or I loved House of Cards um, with, yeah. with Kevin Spacey. And I think... I, 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 I'll send you back to the West Wing. You go back, I've got all oh, <laughs> seven series, 24 episodes of series. I've been through it five times, I think. I need to go on that. You'll love it. You'll absolutely love it. Martin Sheen as a president. Um, and I would also recommend Netflix series Queen's Gambit. Definitely. Okay. Get on to that. About a young woman in the 60s playing chess comes from quite a dysfunctional background. So it's a bit about her life, but also about the Cold War. She ends up in Moscow playing the world champion. Fantastic series, actually. Oh, awesome. Very good. Um, so great. Uh, I, I'm, I'm pleased to hear about the sport. I'm a big uh, sports psychology fan as well. Um, what would I recommend? I'm, I'm an Arsenal fan as well. So I'd recommend Wenger's book. Uh, okay. Uh, My Life in Red and White. It's... Um, pretty enlightening about the psychology and the psychologists he used and how he built that Invincibles team and not so much about the technical footballing ability more about how did you build the mindset which was it's a it's a couple of chapters it's really worth reading so um okay well I'm a big yeah. Everton fan and we've got you on Saturday evening so oh, uh, the way we're playing at the moment I don't know quite what's you going probably on. want us to win an Arteta to be sacked no I don't know no. I think we I think we've got to stick with Arteta I think there's something about him as a young I, uh, manager Absolutely right. That's a good example of um, talent management there. Give him the opportunity to flourish. Yeah, give him a yeah. couple of transfer windows, right? Yeah, absolutely. It takes time, I think, to build it anything, does. you know. And particularly a football team, particularly a team that's gone through, you know, a difficult period. And I mean, you know, Angelotti's doing a great job at Everton, you know. But, you know, last year there weren't much cop, were they? So it takes time for anyone, even an experienced manager like that. It does. They've got to improve the players. And what I'm really pleased about what Angelotti's doing is I've seen an improvement in most of our players now they're stepping especially calvert lewin 
yeah, 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 yeah. He's, he's, you know, he's brought in some talent and he's improving what you've got. Yes, absolutely. And that's all a manager can do, isn't it, really? That's it. It's a bit like HR, really. All you can do is you can bring a bit more talent in, you can develop what you've got and move it on. That's the dream job, Kevin. Um, <laughs> HR director for Everton Football Club, workforce planning. I know the I know the um, HR director at Arsenal very well, Carol and uh, Churchill. She's great, actually. And um, I've been trying to get on here for here on the podcast series for ages. I'll do it eventually. But she, the problem is she's not allowed to talk about all the stuff I wanted to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, um, all it leaves me to do is thank you for spending your time with us today, Rakesh. I think it was a great podcast. There was loads of insightful stuff. Lots of things I think people will be interested. Hopefully you'll get some feedback when we put this out. Um, and um, thank you for spending the time it's uh, greatly appreciated thank you Kevin